Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Dr. Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Laura Heath Stout about her work on archaeology and identity. Following the results of our recent listener survey, we'll be focusing particularly on her work with archaeology and disability, which was a fan favorite listener request. Filling out the panel today is Emily Long. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Happy to be here. (laughs) We're very excited to have you. We are. So, Laura, we normally start out episodes asking our guests to tell them just a little bit about themselves and where their project originated. I know that um, this kind of started as a PhD project for you, unless I'm misremembering. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, so I started working on equity issues in archaeology um, for my PhD project. Uh, I actually came to graduate school intending to do historical archaeology of colonialism in Mesoamerica, and I started a dissertation on that, and I hit a bunch of roadblocks, and I was just having a hard time. I call it my mid-PhD crisis. Uh, many things can relate. And um, <laughs> my research just wasn't working. Uh, and I thought about leaving graduate school, and then I sort of thought about why I had gone to grad school in the first place, what uh, what I loved about archaeology, what I was most interested in, and a lot of the work that I had found most interesting in term papers from undergrad even uh, was thinking about systemic oppression in archaeology. Uh, so I was very lucky to have a very supportive Ooh. advisor, and I said, you know, can I can I change my project? Can I do something completely different? Um, and he said yes. And so uh, for my dissertation, I did both a quantitative study of journal authorship and a qualitative study um, about archaeologists' experiences with a focus on racism, sexism, and homophobia in the discipline of archaeology. That's a huge undertaking. Yeah, and I've managed to make it bigger since I I graduated (laughs) two years ago, and um, I'm now working on the book from that, and the book also looks at classism and ableism, so it's it's a a big project, Um, but um, yeah, I, I really wanted to be intersectional in my work. That's amazing. Which is so important. Oh my gosh, yeah. And just looking at the all of those topics, I feel like there could be a dissertation on just race, a dissertation mm-hmm. on just sexism. And so pulling all of that together, did you find a lot of crossover within those that's like, well, there's definitely, if you're looking at sexism, well, there's going to be issues of race as well, that type of thing. Yes, definitely. And that's actually looking for those overlaps was part of why I wanted to be so ambitious and look at <laughs> um, because there. So since the 1980s, uh, feminist archaeologists have been looking at gender issues quantitatively uh, and looking at Usually it's a particular granting agency or a journal uh, for a particular period of time, and you can kind of count up 
based on first names, uh, making guesses about gender to of authors or grantees to try to get a sense of the gender balance. Uh, and that has um, been really important for establishing the imbalances in the field. And it's also got some problems that a lot of the people doing this work readily acknowledge these days. Um, those of us working on it uh, in recent years really understand that you can't always know someone's gender from their first name. Uh, mm-hmm. And that this is the idea is to get a sort of baseline um, rather than to try to identify every single person correctly but it does exclude uh trans people uh in that you might get their uh if they have a binary gender identification you might get that correct but you wouldn't know that they're trans um or for non-binary people they might not get counted people with um uncommon names might not get counted people with non-english names might not get counted uh Mm -hmm. even if their names are very gendered in the language that the name is from uh if the author Mm -hmm. of the study doesn't know that language um and and then people with gender neutral names in english and so um and then so so it's limited in terms of uh knowing each individual person correctly but you can get an overall baseline um, and then the other limitation is that it isn't intersectional because there's just no way to even make an educated guess about someone's uh, racial identity mm-hmm. or um, sexual orientation or mm-hmm. disability status or uh, class background from <laughs> someone's name. Uh, and so uh, you, you can't do that. And so I set out to use a survey to actually ask authors of journal articles Um, about some of those identities in order to look intersectionally. Um, And what I found is that, uh, so I surveyed all the authors whose email addresses I could find from 21 journals in a 10-year period. Wow. um, Yeah, there's a lot of Googling people looking for their email addresses. Um, hashtag research skills Um, because some journals publish the email address of at least a corresponding author but Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily publish email addresses for everyone also people's email addresses change Um, so yeah it was it was a lot Uh, and um, I found that although Uh, the gender numbers do look a lot better than they did in those earlier studies in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Back then, a lot of the studies showed that um, grants and journal articles were about 70% men, 30% women, and my numbers were more like 60-40. A lot of those women are straight white women. And so that moving towards gender parity is obviously something to celebrate. That's great. But steps. Um, but it's not that does not mean that we're moving towards diversity in a more holistic way. Like mm-hmm. bringing more straight white women into the field is great, but it's not. We can't extrapolate from that that the field is also getting so much better on race issues or um, <laughs> sexuality issues or anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really yeah. just. Uh, that's a single access gain uh, that's happening. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And, yeah, and there are just can I, endless connections. Sorry. Just, 
sorry, can I just break in really quickly? Can you tell our listeners kind of roughly the years that you were doing this research? Mm -hmm. Because obviously COVID has disrupted a lot of things. And I've seen a lot of articles talking about how COVID may have exacerbated trends in males publishing more than females with unequal burdens of care at home in this COVID year. So I want to make sure that we're very clear to our listeners about when we're talking about. Yes, definitely. So my, I started working on the project and designing the project in 2016 and the years for the, uh, of articles that I was um, surveying authors for were 2007 through 2016. I sent out the surveys in early 2017. Okay. Thank you. That that helps a lot. Cause yeah. I have a feel that's a, a good thing to bring up Chelsea. Cause yeah, who knows? Um, if, <laughs> if another study were done that covers the pandemic, I'm sure we'd see a drop. I'd imagine. Yeah, and I believe that um, Lisa Overholzer and Catherine Jalbert are working on a survey of Canadian archaeologists um, about that exact issue right now. Uh, they recently published something in American Antiquity. Um, about their research on gender equity issues in Canadian archaeology. And I have heard that their next project is about COVID. So perhaps oh, cool. future uh, podcast guests. Oh, yes. Come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but going back to uh, your research, so what did you find then, um, since it was difficult to make the determination in terms of sexuality and race, what did you find once you started going in that direction? Yeah. So, um, we, as a field certainly remain, uh, very white and very, um, straight. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so I was able to, uh, find that um, one of the sort of interesting things was that the more prestigious journals tended to not only be more male dominated, but more white dominated and more straight dominated. Um, and hmm. so I looked at journal prestige using a few different metrics, um, H index um, and uh, SJR, Symago journal rank, I believe that stands for, um, as well as impact factor. Uh, and for all of them, there were strong uh, statistical, statistically significant correlations uh, between prestige and sort of domination by straight white cis men. Um, and so uh, that was really notable. Um, but uh, I really also wanted to look at who studies which issues um, or uses which methods or studies which parts of the world. Um, and I mm -hmm. hit some roadblocks in the dissertation research with that because the first way I tried to do that was by I read all the abstracts of all the articles for which I had an author survey um, that where the author had chosen to uh, fill in my survey, and I tried to tag them based on 
regions, methods, and a list of sort of theoretical frameworks. Um, but then I tested myself um, and picked a random sample uh, to tag a second time, and I did not tag them exactly the same way the second time, which shows that I was not able to be super consistent. Um, and so this was sort of a problem in my dissertation, but uh, it's something that I've been working on since. Uh, and so I'm now using some very basic uh, text analysis, just in Excel, actually, just like searching each title and abstract for lists of different keywords that I've written that are associated with different methods or regions. So, um, for example, I have a list of countries in Africa and I start, uh, have Excel search all the abstracts for any of those countries. Um, and if uh, one of the names of the countries pops up, it, it flags that abstract as yes, Africa. Um, then I've had to deal with the fact that there are a lot of words that have um, M-A-L-I, Mali in them. So then I have to remove all the things that say formalize uh, or anything like that. It's like, nope, that's not Africa. Formalize is not the same as Mali. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's been um, no. a little bit of a funky thing. At, at least it's internally consistent. Um, and so um, I'm working on an article right now uh, and it looks like gender and race and sexual orientation of authors are all significant predictors of um, where in the world people work, uh, where people mm -hmm. do their field work, uh, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, actually, gender is the one that's most surprising to me there. Uh, race doesn't surprise me at all because it's historically uh, the colonialist history of archaeology has been full of white archaeologists from North America and Europe uh, studying other people. But then, um, I, I mean, it seems pretty evident that a lot of uh, people from other countries study their own country's history, mm -hmm. mostly. Um, and even that a lot of archaeologists of color in uh, within the United States that I know are studying either the countries that their families immigrated from or the communities that they're descended from. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously not a hundred percent, but so it's not so, but that seems to be the overall trend. Um, and that's something that a lot of my interviewees of color talked about in interviews as well. That also happens. Like I'm very white, um, you know, but I chose to do my research on Scandinavia, which is where my heritage is from. Kind of my point is more interesting, like wanting to understand where you're from and what that that means. And I also mm -hmm. will say I'm not super surprised to hear that there's a difference in gender and where people study, because there are certainly places that I would not want to study just from like almost a, a safety perspective or a concern about local cultures not not respecting me and not respecting my authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the, true also for sexual orientation issues, definitely, mm. um, that uh, going to the field can be really fraught um, for queer people um, in terms of uh, safety and degree of being out and to whom you come out. And so mm -hmm. I think that, um, I mean, there are some parts of the world where 
being gay is a crime. Um, but then there's, so that of course is an issue. Um, but it's, it's also, it's not that the United States, for example, where I'm from is so great on sexual orientation. Uh, there are many Mm -hmm. states in this country where I could legally be fired or evicted for being gay. Um, and under state law. Uh, so it's not like the U.S. is so great, but there's something about going to a different cultural context where I can sort of guess in the U.S. who's going to maybe not approve of me um, being queer and who is. And I can like hang out in my little um, progressive bubble of academics and uh, activists in mm-hmm. Boston and have no problems. Uh, but um, when I go to another country, I just can't necessarily read as well who's going to be okay with things and who isn't. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's definitely a concern um, for going, traveling to different places. And then I think that there's also communities develop in different subfields where you get to know a mentor who's either queer themselves or um or is like accepting of of you and then you like Mm -hmm. go and work where they work um and so these and you're more likely to want to keep working in a particular place if you uh have a sense that you're accepted in that community. And so I think like Mm -hmm. pockets develop in different places that then encourage people to, uh, with particular identities to continue working in those places. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. It definitely makes sense. And I'm sure the surrounding environment on so many levels makes a difference. And I know you're, you're saying even in the United States and it's like all the stories started popping up in my head of like, Oh yeah, that's when I was on a crew with all men and man, that was not fun. And just different mm-hmm. things like that, where it makes sense that you get these little bubbles and pockets of safe spaces. And it's a shame we don't have all pocket. It's not a pocket. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a full dress, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what we need to work for is uh, making the pockets bigger and bigger until they they take up the whole outfit. <laughs> exactly. Um, pockets are great, yep. but we could make them bigger. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> pockets are never big enough. That is true. Ever. <laughs> Metaphorically. Clothing or... marketed to women. <laughs> exactly. We need a whole handbag, a satchel. Yeah. <laughs> a backpack. <laughs> what, we, what we really need is those like you know, I think it's 1700s. Sorry, I'm not a clothing historian. Oh, the, but when you had the panniers and like the, the they're giant just like pocket. giant bags on your side. Yeah, so that's what um, we need. A giant bag that you can tie to your waist of inclusive, inclusivity. Yeah. <laughs> right, an inclusive uh, dress. Yep. <laughs> anyway, on that note, we have hit uh, the end of our first 20 minutes of recording. So we will be back after the break. Hooray! Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. 
Hi everyone and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Laura Heath Stout. In the first segment, we talked a lot about her research on differences in um, sex, sexual orientation, gender, and race when it comes to publishing in articles. For this segment, we're going to talk a little bit more of some of the, the results that she had from that survey and transition a bit more into looking at disability as an aspect of an intersectional identity as well. So Laura, I know that in addition to doing this qualitative, or sorry, quantitative study on journals, you also did some qualitative interviews. Was there anything there that you found particularly surprising or that you weren't expecting to come up that did? Yeah, I mean, there's a um, there's a lot. So for my dissertation, I did 72 interviews. Um, I was aiming for between 50 and 60, but there were a bunch of people who said, yeah, you could interview me. How about at next SAA? And I said, yeah, sure. And I expected some of them to flake out and then none of them <laughs> did because my interviews are amazing. And so I ended up doing like 14 interviews at one oh SAA God. one year. It was really a lot. Uh, so I ended up hitting 72. <laughs> um, and then um, for I've been expanding the study for the book project Um and have done about 30 more interviews. So I've, I've got a lot. There's a lot there. Um, Just to poke in real quick, um, what is the book going to be called and where will it be available? It is called um, Identity, Oppression, and Diversity in Archaeology, colon, Career Arcs. Nice. And um, it is under contract with Rutledge, um, they're doing a new archaeology of gender and sexuality series that's being edited by Pamela Geller. Um, and so it's going to be in that series. But I have another year to write it, so it's going to be a while. <laughs> um, no worries. We'll just have to keep it on our radar. Yeah. Yep. Um, so for the future, um, and perhaps someone will be listening to this podcast uh, a couple of years from now and it will be out. <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, sorry for interrupting, but please continue. <laughs> yeah. So um, my original dissertation interviews uh, really focused on uh, gender, race, and sexual orientation. Uh, and um, one of the really interesting things that I found was I started every interview with the same question, which is uh, how and when did you decide to become an archaeologist? And I sort of thought that that would just be a nice opening question. Uh, pretty much everyone has been asked that question before. And so people will have a ready answer. And so it'll help establish a rapport with me and the interviewee and make everyone comfortable mm -hmm. and get us started. And um, it ended up being such an interesting question to analyze the answers of in a way that I didn't expect. It wasn't because... all Indiana Jones? <laughs> <laughs> there was a fair amount of Indiana Jones in there. Um, but one of the things that I noticed was, um, I think that there are a lot of archaeologists who are like me in that they have a like, cute story of being a kid and wanting to be an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, that's actually, uh, among my interviewees, that's 
um, there, there was actually a bigger group who uh, decided to become an archaeologist once they entered college huh. uh, and like had no interest or no knowledge really um, of archaeology before that. Um, and a lot of those people, even though they were in the majority of my interviewees, when I asked the question, they said, oh, well, I don't have a cute story like everyone else of when I was a precocious kid who was really into archaeology, <laughs> but um, I went to college and I was interested in majoring in something else. And then uh, I took this class as a general education requirement and it was really amazing and I got into it. Or my friend or my roommate took this class and um, said, oh, you have to take a class with professor so-and-so. Or there was one person who, um, there was like an administrative mix-up and they were supposed to have a work-study job in um, some other like science lab, but then there was an admin mix up and they ended up having a work study job in the archaeology lab. Um, and so these sort of uh, feel sort of serendipitous feeling encounters with archaeology mm. in college were more common. Um, but so many people were sort of self-conscious, like, oh, well, I didn't, you know, I sort of got into it late when I was 18, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, so old. <laughs> right? um, but, I mean, that was um, me. There, there were actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's actually really common. And so, um, but there's there are some race and class related dynamics there where um, a lot of us who have these precocious kids stories have part of that story is either um, a vacation to some archeological site or uh, museum visits mm -hmm. with family or some incredible social studies teacher in school. Um, and all of those are can be related to class. Not that people from lower or working class backgrounds never take vacations or never go to museums, and not that teachers working in mm -hmm. underfunded public schools aren't incredible. But rich people have more time and money to go on vacation mm -hmm. and to go take their kids to museums. Um, and uh, well-funded public schools and private schools give their social studies teachers a lot more freedom of what to teach, give their teachers in general more freedom of what to teach because they're less beholden to uh, standardized tests. And so on average, rich kids are more likely to encounter archaeology before college. And I found this actually kind of counterintuitive because I think of college as such an exclusive space mm -hmm. that um, it seemed to me like, uh, you know, college shouldn't be the great recruiting ground for uh, marginalized archaeologists right? <laughs> because who gets to go to college? Um, but... Um, it, it does seem to be that way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. And so it, I found that really interesting and it made me much more aware when I do tell my story of being a precocious little kid, uh, I, it makes me very aware of how much my class privilege was part of that story mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I don't think I was before. Um, I don't think I, I had really thought about the fact that my parents 
you know, had professional salaries and weekends off. And that that was part of how they were able to, I grew up in New Jersey and they would take me into New York city to go to the museum of natural history or the Met. Um, And like, if my parents had been working three jobs, minimum wage, they would not have been able to do that as often, even if they had the inclination. That's a really good point. Um, never mind the vacations that we took. <laughs> I mean, we took a lot of mm-hmm. vacations that had a lot of like educational content to them, a lot of historic sites uh, and things like that. And so that's expensive and requires, I, my parents are both educators, so they had um, flexibility in the summer. I don't want to say off. They worked a lot during the summer, but they weren't actively teaching. They were preparing to, to teach for the for the fall. And um, so they were able to take a two week vacation uh, in the summer in a way that a lot of people just can't. Yeah. So I also thought the point you made earlier about colleges being privileged spaces, which they definitely are. And as more and more archaeology jobs require a undergraduate degree mm-hmm. at the very least and some even a master's degree that you are really limiting your pool of potential archaeologists and different viewpoints from which one can view the past by by putting that requirement in Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think field schools are also a problem here because much as college is terribly expensive in the United States and we don't have nearly enough financial aid available, um, there are systems for financial aid, uh, no matter how flawed they are. Um, and there are, you know, community colleges and, and um public universities that are somewhat more affordable. Um, But with field schools, um, I actually wrote an article, uh, I co-wrote it with uh, my friend Elizabeth Hannigan, who uh, did her undergrad degree at Boston University when I was there doing my PhD. And uh, we wrote a paper together um, that's been published in Advances in Archaeological Practice about the cost of field schools and so it was uh for summer 2019 i believe we gathered all of the field schools that were on the uh, archaeological institute of america archaeological field works online bulletin uh or field mm-hmm. Archaeological Fieldwork Opportunities Bulletin, that's what it's called, Um, and also any that we heard about or were sent through chain letters or saw on social media that year um, being advertised, and we found that the uh, uh, sort of normalizing for, um, like, length of time, the uh, uh, four-week the average cost of a four-week field school, including college credit, is over $4,000. Um, and that doesn't include airfare and that doesn't include lost wages. And so we were sort of thinking Mm -hmm. like, that's not even the whole cost because if you go on a four week field school in July, it's going to be really hard to get a job for June and August. Like who wants to hire a college Mm -hmm. student for the summer, but they're gone for four weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, um, and I think some of that ties into a lot of field schools, use the tuition to to fund the program essentially because it's mm-hmm. not well funded through through the university and i mean talking about field schools it just reminds me of having conversations with 
some of my own students and seeing conversations that were happening on Twitter, blog posts, TikTok, what have you, about you know, archaeologists with disabilities visible or invisible and the difficulties of maybe needing an interpreter, mm-hmm. but not knowing that you're going to need an interpreter because you, you sight read really well or lip read really well, but then you get there and the person who's explaining is looking down at the dirt and you can't see their lips. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not being able to find someone who speaks or who signs the same language as you do, particularly if you've gone to um, a foreign com- country. So there are all these additional barriers mm-hmm. that are put in place if you have either visible or invisible di- uh, disabilities. Yeah. Yeah. So um, like I said, I've been expanding the study to in- include ableism um, and classism more directly. And part of that is that even in my first interviews where I didn't have any you know, prepared questions about disability, there were a handful of interviewees who brought up disability issues um, in their interviews and uh, accommodations. And so I got really interested in that. Um, I'm disabled myself, um, but in a non-apparent or invisible way. Uh, people don't necessarily uh, know that I'm disabled unless I tell them. And um, and my partner is a disability rights organizer. So, um, uh, you know, I, I was sort of coming to uh, an identity as a more political disabled identity over the course of this project um, anyway. And then, um, yeah, and so then I disability was like starting to come up and I realized, you know, I really need to think about this more. And um, so I interviewed a bunch more um archaeologists specifically about uh, disability and ableism uh, for the book. And uh, I mean, one thing that surprised me was just how easy it was to recruit uh, archaeologists with disabilities uh, to... We're out there. (laughs) And I just thought, I thought it was going to be hard to find people. um, And it was not at all. (laughs) And So I I sort of put the word out. I I posted it a bunch of Facebook groups and on Twitter. And I also asked all of my interviewees from the first, from the dissertation, from the first round of interviews, I said, if you have a disability and you want to talk to me more and tell me about that, I'd love to hear from you. And if you... Um, have colleagues who are disabled, would you be willing to forward them an email from me um, asking them if they'd be interested in being interviewed? And it was just super easy. Like I was just flooded with messages. Um, And so uh, that was really interesting. And it just made clear to me how many of us there are. Uh, There are so many of us. Um, And there are people with visible or apparent disabilities as well. It's not just invisible disabilities, but so many of us are sort of passing as non-disabled a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think partly that's a sign of how ableist the discipline is, um, that it's it's very difficult for archaeologists who present as obviously disabled to get into the field at all. And part of it... Why do you is, think that is? 
I think it's partly our emphasis on field work, um, to be honest. Oh, and the physicality, the physicality of field work? I think archaeologists, we often are really proud of being, like, field workers and, like, we climb the mountain and carry the heavy buckets. In fact, buckets have come up. It's a really interesting <laughs> Um, so I had all of these interviewees in the like first round, a whole bunch of women interviewees brought up carrying buckets and having buckets and other heavy objects taken out of their hands by men as a common sexist microaggression uh, happening in the field. Um, and there was a lot of like, I'm an archaeologist, I can carry my own buckets. Um which I have felt myself. So when I worked in mm-hmm. Mexico, um, there was a worker on the pro- So I was working on a project run by the Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia, which is a government agency uh, in Mexico. And um, so it was like a mixture of Mexican archaeologists, Mexican archaeology students, a whole bunch of local hired laborers, and then me and occasionally a couple of other um, like U.S. grad students uh, volunteering and and participating. Um, And so I would work with, uh, there was this guy, Huicho, uh, who's just like a local worker who we worked together a lot. And he was, he just took every bucket out of my hands with a smile, very friendly, (laughs) but like, he could not, I was not to carry heavy buckets and I found it like kind of sexist and annoying at first. Um, <laughs> and so I, I could really identify with this. I was like, I can carry my own buckets. <laughs> we choke. <laughs> um, but uh, just cause I'm a woman and white doesn't mean I can't carry a bucket. Um, so <laughs> on the bucket thing, I will both say that yes, I can carry my own damn bucket. But also, as someone who is relatively short, um, a lot of the buckets, I have to physically bend my arm to get off of the ground, which means that I do have to actively use my biceps rather than just being able to, like, bend my knees, pick it up, and just kind of lock your arms out. So maybe we just also need some shorter buckets. Yeah. And better handles. Yes. Oh, better handles. Yeah. And in Mexico, where I work, we were working during the rainy season because... Um, the just the way the academic year shakes out, um, we the all the academics are available in the summer, which is rainy season in Tlaxcala, and so usually it just uh, you get some multi day rainstorms, but mostly it's like every late afternoon evening it rains, and so you're digging mud in the morning, and we have these five gallon buckets uh-huh. that are filling to the brim with like wet dirt they're really heavy <laughs> they're so heavy and so like i can carry it but like it's actually easier for Weijo to carry it um, mm. and well then that makes me wonder too then the because i've worked with individuals who have the and i, and I, I apologize if if this is not the correct term a, a birth defect where their arm stops Mm-hmm. At, a, at a specific point and so how would they be able to pick up a heavy bucket and carry it and I know there was a stigma against them because they were unable to carry it but then it's like why couldn't we then make accommodations right to make it possible for them to have the bucket why do we think that carrying buckets is essential to like the the center of all of this feeling about 
um, competence in doing archaeological work. They're, I mean, buckets need to be carried. That is like part of field work. Buckets need to be carried. Someone needs to carry the buckets. The buckets need to be carried, but it's not actually essential that every person on an excavation carry buckets. And that's not the essential work of archaeology. The essential work of archaeology is interpreting the past through material culture. And in order for that to happen, someone needs to carry buckets. But we do not all need to carry buckets in order to be real archaeologists. It's just unnecessary. So I think we need to open our minds about that. Yeah, that is a really great point um, to end our second segment on of, you know, let's get back to thinking about what are the essential tasks of archaeology and who actually needs to carry the bucket. And when we come back in our next segment, we will talk a little bit more about, you know, who needs to carry the bucket and what accommodations can be made. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Dr. Laura Heath-Stout. And at the end of last segment, we were talking about how not everyone needs to carry the bucket. The bucket needs to be carried, but... Not by everybody. Not by everyone. Um, So when we move into this segment, we're going to be talking a little bit more about whose responsibility it is to make sure that the bucket is carried, what accommodations need to be made, what accommodations can be made, etc. So Laura, to kick us off, when you were doing your um, survey with individuals who are disabled, did they have opinions about, you know, who should be responsible for carrying the proverbial bucket? Yes, definitely. Um, And so um, part of how I approach all of this is that um, I look at at archaeology using the social model of disability. And so um, the models of disability are different ways that um, disability studies scholars have come up with to describe the different sort of common ways of thinking about about disability in our society. And Mm -hmm. so... Uh, We have the medical model, which sees uh, disabled bodies and minds as uh, needing to be fixed um, but through medicine. We have the charity model, which sees disabled people as sort of poor, piteous um, victims who uh, we should we should pity and we should um, give give money to help them on a sort of individual level because we as individuals feel bad. Um, and then there's a social model of disability, which says that yes, many bodies and minds have impairments, but that the impairment itself is not a problem. Um, and so what's the, the problem is when 
society and institutions and communities are not built in ways that accommodate people with a variety of bodies and minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a uh, key example is um, glasses uh, that lots and lots of people in the United States today wear glasses or contact lenses uh, because they have a visual impairment and we just don't see a you know, slightly nearsighted person who's wearing glasses as disabled. Um, because, uh, it's like in our society, it's not actually a problem to have a mild visual, visual impairment. You, uh, I mean, glasses are expensive and that's a problem. Um, but most people who need them do actually have access to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people just wear glasses and it's not, it's just not an issue. Um, and so, uh, they have an impairment, but they are not disabled by society because society, uh, has glasses and contact lenses. Um, now those could be more available, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But that's uh, a great analogy. Yeah. Um, and then another common example is curb cuts, uh, which are where a sidewalk uh, has will have like a little ramp at the corner to, that slopes down to the street. Um, mm-hmm. And so those um, were advocated for by uh, disabled activists. Um, And the idea is that uh, someone who can't step up onto a curb or down off of a curb and is using a wheelchair, perhaps, um, there's not actually anything wrong with their body. Um, The problem is the sidewalk uh, that has a step to get uh, on or off of it. Um, And so we could just build the sidewalk to have curb cuts uh, at corners and then uh, the sidewalk becomes accessible to the person who's using a wheelchair. Um, and those are also a good example of universal design because that also helps people who have a stroller or a shopping cart uh, or or anything else um, mm-hmm. that they're carrying um, or people who are sort of temporarily disabled by an injury and might be using crutches or a wheelchair for like a few weeks yeah. um, also a- benefit. That's a really great point that kind of accessible and inclusive design benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in archaeology, the social model of disability would say that um, it is the responsibility of um, field directors, archaeology projects, uh, classroom teachers to make their uh their projects and classes uh, accessible to people with disabilities. Now, of course, uh, there are a lot of archaeological sites that are in remote uh, places and on terrain where um, wheelchair accessibility would be very, very difficult. Um, And we, you know, I acknowledge that. Um, But I think that there are a lot of disabilities um, that can be accommodated uh, through a sort of um, flexibility. Um, and so there are no, there are no digs that I've ever experienced where every single person does every single task. Um, there are always people who are either have specialized skills or, um, 
particular interests who are doing particular things or uh, even just seniority that like people who have been there longer are maybe uh, supervising and teaching a bunch of people um, who are newer. And so we're always specialized. We're always collaborating. Uh, it's very, very rare that you have a dig where there's just one person doing it. I did hear of one through my dissertation, somebody who like went and dug uh, some test pits all alone for her <laughs> dissertation work, but it's like real rare right um and so not everyone has to carry the bucket not everyone has to do the paperwork um maybe there's one person who's carrying the buckets and another person who's doing all the writing um and so we can think more broadly than we usually do about which tasks um different people are able to do and we need to be doing that in conversation with mm -hmm the people who are going to be doing them. It can't be based on assumptions. So um, there's a piece coming out later this year in the annual of ASOR, so on archaeological ethics. Uh, there's a chapter by um, Debbie Sneed and Mason Schrader, um, who uh, both study disability in the past. Um, they're both classical archaeologists. And Mason has cerebral palsy, uh, and he writes about his experiences being just like outright not accepted to field schools on the assumption that he wouldn't be able to um to participate uh because and that's not legal right i mean uh, it seems like no. that with ada and everything if they're yeah. especially if they're get, if a lot of digs get federal funds too yeah. it's no it's, it's definitely it's definitely not legal <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in the United States, uh, you, you can't do that. Um, but people do. Um, and, um, yeah, and so he, but he talks about all, he writes about also a really positive experience he had on a field school where he, uh, where the director uh, reached out to him before the summer started, before the field season started. And they had a whole meeting where they talked about, okay, what are the different, um, they're like going to be different crews working on different parts of the site. And like, here are the kinds of tasks they're going to, they're, they're going to be doing. And here's the topography of the site. Uh, and here's, um, like which crew do you think it would make sense for you to be on? Mm -hmm. Um, and what, uh, accommodations might you need? And because he had had that conversation, uh, and the director continued, I believe, also to check in with him over the course of the field school about how it was going, he participated very successfully. And so um, he was put on the crew uh, that where like him just being able to like physically navigate to that area was going to be easiest, and navigate around that area was going to be easiest for him. Um, and it worked out. And so I think that there's a, if we approach running field work or lab work or even classes in archaeology with that mentality that it is the job of the leadership of the program to mm -hmm. make it as accessible as possible, um, that the problem is not this person has this disability. The problem is that the, that the way we usually run digs is not is only designed for certain kinds of bodies and minds mm -hmm. um and with some flexibility and an open mind and asking questions well can you do this can you do that um that's really um a lot is possible and so I there's like yeah that's sorry. just basic 
human decency. Just like don't don't be an ass <laughs> for lack of a better. But it <laughs> seems like a lot of folks would not be willing to have that like conversation. It's like mm-hmm. time is money or that kind of attitude. So I, it seems there needs to be an attitude shift as well. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some really amazing examples. So um, there is a, was a woman, Teresa O'Mahony uh, in the UK. She died a couple of years ago, but she founded the Enabled Archaeology Foundation in the UK. Mm-hmm. And she wrote this uh, guide that's free online. I can uh, give uh, the Women in Archaeology podcast folks the link um, to, to post a oh, guide to Enabled Archaeology where she wrote about all these different ways um, that you can um, accommodate people. And she talked about like taping trowels or spoons to people's hands if their hands are an unusual shape uh, or they don't have a strong grip. Uh, She even has this example of digging a ramp down into a trench for wheelchair users, which is a particularly ambitious one, I think. Uh, that's kind of I neat. mean, it's a vertical, vertical dig, or what is it, like a, what do they call the type of dig where you're digging against the hill mm. as opposed to doing steps? Mm-hmm. So why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Um, and so, yeah, and there's, um, there's some organizations that do archaeology with veterans that have been particularly mm-hmm. cool about this so there's the nightingale project in the uk and american veterans archaeological recovery in the u.s um that i know that some of those folks worked with Teresa. um but there's a lot of uh possibilities there where um some of it is even just thinking about like making sure that people have opportunities to take breaks and eat snacks and drink water um Mm -hmm. the american veterans archaeological recovery when they do field projects they have a mental health counselor on site the whole time with people because a lot of the um veterans who they work with have uh depression anxiety and Mm -hmm. or ptsd um such an asset on all projects right oh my gosh don't you mandated water breaks Great idea. And water breaks and mental health checks. I love it. I love it. And they also, they have, they encourage people to, they provide like an occupational therapist who will talk to people before the dig about um, what they're like, how to dig in ways that work for their body. And mm-hmm. so uh, the person I talked to who's a leader in this organization was saying, we think about disabled veterans as being like people missing limbs, but a lot of people actually these days, uh, veterans of recent wars just have like chronic knee and back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of it is about figuring out ways to lift things or move in ways that don't exacerbate those issues. And I thought, you know, a lot of archaeologists have chronic knee and back problems. Exactly. <laughs> we could all maybe talk to an occupational therapist about like ways to move that mm-hmm. work our bodies. Um, so again, universal design. <laughs> we mentioned, I can't remember whether there was earlier in a segment or in one of the breaks, but just kind of some of the issues with identifying archaeology solely as a fieldwork-based discipline, because mm-hmm. there are sites that are you know, not not accessible if you have to scale a mountain to get to them or, um, you know, rappel down the side of a cliff to get to them. Um, I know some of the kind of recovering um, veterans from 
from previous wars, planes end up in weird places that are hard mm. to get to. Um, but that that's not all archaeology exactly. is. Archaeology is collections. Paperwork. Archaeology <laughs> is writing reports. Archaeology is, you know, so just this, this kind of idea of archaeology as only being field work. Shifting that might also help to, mm-hmm. to think of archaeologists as representing a, a more diverse population. Yeah, and in fact, I was surprised by how many of my disabled interviewees with all different disabilities talked about the lab as being like a more accessible space to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I let's see. So uh, one of my interviewees is autistic and she talked about how like just the way her mind works, um, she does best in sort of like quiet spaces um, that she's less likely to get sensorily overwhelmed and that's more likely to work in the lab. Right. Um, And that also she finds that um, the kind of like puzzle like work of um, lab analysis is like something that she's really good at. So it's not even just that she is, gets overwhelmed in the field sometimes it's that, like she's especially good at certain kinds of lab work um, because mm-hmm. of her disability. Um, I had an archaeologist who's hard of hearing tell me that she um, found the lab more accessible also because of the like more quiet, um, the, the because it's more quiet that she has trouble um, like having a conversation when there's a lot of background noise uh, and sort of picking out the person who's, who's speaking. Um, And also that uh, she lip reads a lot and people are more likely to be like looking at you and talking Mm -hmm. uh, in the lab. And so in the field, she's constantly being like, ah, will you look at me? I can't. So I can read your lips. Um, And um, yeah, people with mobility impairments, often labs are either just like, easier to physically get into or like once you're there you're sitting down um that's a big thing um there are people with um you know allergies or chemical sensitivities for whom like the lab just because you're not moving around as much if you can get the space to work for you in whatever way then it just stays that way you know um and you're so not just like- need to present that option as a more like this is a huge represent pretty much like what is it like 20% field work, 80% lab paperwork, mm-hmm. forms, analysis? <laughs> How many abandoned collections are there? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And we are just so we're so field focused as a discipline um and I think we really need to let go of that because there mm-hmm. are all these abandoned collections that need to be studied um and you know, not, not everybody has to go to the field or go to the field a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And even like, I think there's an interesting work of field work being um, rethought as well. Um, I I think about um, Sarah Gonzalez's work where she does um, catch and release survey where uh, they, they look at service collections and then uh, you know, document them in the field or document them in the lab and then return them to the places that they were from. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just think there's so much creative work going on right now to like rethink what archaeology is uh, and make it more inclusive. So in terms of like a general 
call to action. What can we do to be more supportive as a field? And then where, what kind of organizations are out there for those who may identify as a disabled archaeologist? Yeah, so I think that, um, so there are some really cool organizations based in the UK. There's the Enabled Archaeology Foundation. And then um, I have been involved in founding the Disabled Archaeologists Network. Uh, Wonderful. Brand new this spring. Um, and uh, it's all archaeologists with disabilities, but very uh, undergrads through retirees and uh, people with all different kinds of disabilities, learning disabilities, mental health disabilities, um, any kind of disability, uh, chronic illnesses, uh, uh, as well as things that uh, are more sort of obviously uh, in the realm of disability. And um, a lot of us are in the U.S., but we also have folks in Canada, the U.K., and other parts of Europe who are involved. Um, And so uh, I will share the link to join our, um, to request to join our Google group and our Facebook group, um, Mm -hmm. to get publicized by the women in archeology span podcast. And, um, yeah. And so we're doing a mixture, uh, we're thinking about what we want to do still. We're a brand new organization, but we're thinking about, uh, both, uh, sort of ways to support each other and ways to educate, uh, archeologists more broadly about, um, accommodations and access, um, and uh, so, and also promoting uh, archaeology, uh, archaeological interpretations of the past that come from, uh, that are informed by disability studies, um, mm-hmm. especially in terms of uh, sort of interpretations of uh, disabled bodies in the past or bioarchaeology and uh, institutions for disabled people in the past, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that yeah. not all of that is coming from a medical model, but that we're including sort of disabled voices in those interpretations. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really, really exciting. Um, And so I hope that people will get involved uh, in those in uh, Disabled Archaeologist Network or in enabled in the Enabled Archaeology Foundation. Um, And uh, for everyone else, I would just encourage you to think about uh, if you're teaching um, are you in touch with the disability office or disability um, like administrative folks at your university um, about how to be most accommodating to your students? If you are running a field school or a field project that isn't a field school, are you open proactively opening up conversations with everyone on your crew about what they need to succeed in the field. Uh, If you're running a lab, uh, are you talking to the people that you're working with about Mm -hmm. how to make that lab comfortable and accessible to them? Um, And uh, we can, uh, I think, all just by sort of asking those questions and keeping an open mind and being flexible, um, we can... be more inclusive um, of archaeologists. And there are just so many of us. There's so many of us. And many of us are um, passing as non-disabled, people with like chronic health conditions, learning disabilities, mental health disabilities. Uh, you may not realize uh, how many of us there are all around you all the time. But archaeologists with disabilities are everywhere. Exactly. Um, 
and there's probably someone with a disability on your crew already. And if you don't mm-hmm. know that, that may be a sign uh, that you're not um, having those open conversations that you could be having. And so I encourage you uh, to just uh, try to widen widen your ideas about um, who needs to be doing what uh, in a, in an archaeological research context and um, and see see what you can accommodate um, and so and keep your eye out for educational resources coming out of the disabled archaeologist network. Yeah, I think those are all really great points to make. Um, we are unfortunately at the end of our third segment, but Laura, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been absolutely fascinating and we would love to get you back on in the future. Uh, Maybe when your book comes out, we can do a a promo episode. Wouldn't say no to that. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, this has been a, a phenomenal conversation. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation We hope you have taken something away, um, some practices that you can put into your own life to make the world a better, more accessible place. If you liked what you heard today, um, please make sure that you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter at WomenArchies, and you can email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye. Bye.